If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me, please, to James chapter 2, starting with verse 14. As you find that passage of Scripture, let me just tell you that World Impact is a Christian missions organization that's committed to planting churches among the unchurched urban poor in America. We began out of the rubble of the Watts riots in 1965 and have since spread to several major cities across these United States. When we first move into a community, we frequently begin to minister to young people like Sharon. Sharon lived in Watts and attended one of our Bible clubs. I first became aware of Sharon when her mother had died. She was 15 years of age, and she was going door to door through the housing projects, begging for nickels and dimes in order to pay for the funeral to bury her mother. Little did I realize that this was but one in a long string of tragedies for this young girl. When Sharon was nine years of age, her father started to rape her on a regular basis. He'd come and get her at one or two in the morning, force her to have sex with him, and threatened that if she ever told anybody, he would kill her. Even though she was in Bible club day after day, she never said a word to us. Her mother was critically ill, and she was afraid that if she told her mother what was going on, that that would just be the straw that broke the camel's back. When she was 15 years of age, she became sick and had an intense pain in her stomach. She went to the doctors, all kinds of trouble, part of which was that she'd never have her own children. When she came home, her father wanted to resume this filthy habit, but this time she refused, and he got very angry. He lined all seven kids up in the kitchen. He took a gun, paced back and forth, told them that they should submit to him, threaten their lives. Sharon just couldn't take it anymore. She started to scream, and she screamed and screamed, but nobody heard, or at least nobody listened. Finally, she was able to slip out of the kitchen, go across the little patio in the projects to a neighbor's house, phone the police. They came and arrested the father. That's when the mother found out what had been going on, and within a few days, she did die. That's when we paid for the funeral. Our scripture this morning, James chapter 2, starting with verse 14. Uh, I'm going to read from the Living Bible paraphrase. Dear brothers, what's the use of saying that you have faith in our Christians if you aren't proving it by helping others? Will that kind of faith save anyone? If you have a friend who is in need of food and clothing and you say to him, well, goodbye and God bless you, stay warm and eat hearty, And then don't give him clothes or food. What good does that do? So you see, it isn't enough just to have faith. You must also do good to prove that you have it. Faith that doesn't show itself by good works is no faith at all. It is dead, and it is useless. Faith without works is dead. But faith with works is compelling, transforming, attractive, addictive. Let me give you a living example. Several years ago, Tim Goodu graduated from Notre Dame University. He went back to the New York area, started to follow in the footsteps of his father, who was an executive in a New York accounting-based firm. Nick, excuse me, uh, Tim soon accepted Christ. He and his wife, Janet, became involved in the local church. They started to study the Word of God. Like me, they realized that There was more scripture dealing with how God's people related to the poor and oppressed than any other subject in this book. And they started to look for a place where they could get involved. They phoned World Impact and our ministry in Newark, New Jersey, and they asked if they could volunteer. And so they started once a week 
teaching young people in Bible clubs. And before long, they were there on weekends. And it wasn't long until they resigned their secular jobs and Tim and Janet moved into Newark and became missionaries with World Impact. As you know, Newark is one of the neediest cities in America. It is a place where many people suffer from the oppression that's spoken of in Scripture. Next door to Tim and Janet's home was a tenement where 55 people lived. One cold winter's night, the landlord had put no heating oil into the tenement. Necessity is the mother of invention, and so people turned on gas flames, and they lit hibachis, and somehow about two in the morning, that building caught on fire, burned to the ground. Fifty-three people escaped. Two people burned to death that night. Nobody had to phone Tim and Janet to tell them that there was an emergency. They knew. The neighbors later told me that Janet had a bag full of socks and his children ran out into this icy street. She was there putting socks on these kids and Tim opened the center and there was hot chocolate there and a place for shelter. Strange things in New Jersey happen, one of which is they build their homes about this close to each other. And so when that tenement caught on fire, so did Tim and Janet's house. And everyone in the neighborhood watched very closely to see if these missionaries who had told them that God would meet your every need, no matter what was confronting you, how they would respond when they suffered just like everyone in the community. And that night turned out to be a real opener for our ministry in the city. Churches have been planted, a school was founded because of their incarnational ministry. In 1995, Tim and Janet and their family moved to Los Angeles to direct our ministry here. They moved on to 20th Street. One of the people that they met on 20th Street was Anna Rosa. Anna Rosa was a seven-year-old little girl who came to Bible Club in their house. Janet uh, continued to minister to her through the age of about 13. Anna Rosa's father was an abusive drug addict and an alcoholic. She grew up in a pretty tough situation. But her mom was always supportive and protective of her and of her brother. I want you to meet Anna Rosa this morning. She's going to share her testimony. Will you help me welcome her? You can stand over here if you want. Um, good afternoon. Um, well, like he said, I grew up in a very chaotic home. Um, however, I had um, Tim and Janet teach me about God, and I always used God as my strength to continue with life um, regardless of what was going on at home. And um, I saw things get worse at home. They gradually just kept getting worse and worse. And I began to lose hope in God, um, and I remained that way for a period of time. Um, but then I had them invite me to come to a winter retreat at the Oaks, which opened my eyes to God again, and it helped me revamp and, like, reestablish my faith in Christ. And then I began attending a youth group um, called Kaleo, close to where I used to live. And there I saw how God had worked in the lives of many teens that attended. So then I, that also encouraged me to keep seeking God and that encouraged me to bring some of my friends. And now I have had the privilege to see God work in their lives. And, and I've seen their faith grow as well. Um, well, now to go on into what I have planned for the future. Um, I'm going to be attending Wellesley College in Massachusetts. It's like Boston area. Um, this fall. And well, I plan on majoring in neuroscience and minoring in psychology. 
And the reason I bring this up is because growing up, I always looked for an answer for why my father acted the way he did. And I always wanted the answer to be like, oh, some kind of psychological problem. But now I see that um, the answer was always there. And I feel that God placed me in the household that he did uh, as a way of motivating me to um, strive to, for a better future. So I feel like that was God's way of encouraging me. And of course, he never left me alone. He always placed um, very create, like encouraging and um, amazing people around me. For example, like, like he explained, Tim and Janet and Susie and all the people who have ministered to me. He always had them as support for me. And well, yeah, I would just like to conclude with a request for prayer so that I can stay strong in my faith as I move on to college and just to give me the strength to be far away from my house. Um, and I'm actually leaving this 24th, so in a couple of days. And thank you, that's it. Thank you. As you probably picked up, Susie uh, helps direct our ministry among young people in uh, downtown Los Angeles. Susie Cook is a foreign missionary from Vancouver, British Columbia and has moved into the city to uh, work with young people like Anna Rosa. Susie, talk to us a little bit about what you do, please. All right, well, I'll speak slowly so you can understand me through my thick foreign accent. (laughs) Um, I have been here for almost six years now, and in those six years, God has given me the great privilege of working with young people like Anna Rosa. And she actually didn't mention this, but she is such a bright student. She got a full-ride scholarship to Wellesley. Um, I think her um, her GPA was something like a 4.7, and I didn't even know that that was possible. So anyway, um, but God has given me so much hope through the, the young people that he has given me the privilege to minister to. Some of them are over here, Juana and Aaron, if you just want to wave your hand. These are... Um, These are some friends who were invited to our youth group, Kaleo Youth, which means called or chosen ones in Greek. And they were invited by Ana Rosa. Uh, Just last September, we had a fall outreach, a back-to-school sort of party. And they began coming, and they've grown so much in their faith. And Juana just recently uh, committed her life to Christ and was baptized at the beach. And so as she stepped forward and said that she wanted to walk in obedience and wanted to be baptized, five others said that they wanted to make that commitment as well. So their faith is just contagious. And uh, the two of them also just finished our leadership development program. And as a part of that leadership development program, we went up to the World Impact site in San Francisco where Francis's brother is the director. And we uh, did a few service projects there. And they are just so excited about sharing their faith uh, to, to those in their own community as well as beyond. And so Keith is going to share a little bit more about the hope that is coming um, in our communities through the youth. Thank you. You can have that. Okay. Well, Susie and the people that work with her in the city have a very vital ministry to young people. Let me just share about some of the people that they minister to. 14-year-old Chervelle was working in the library in a research project for school. As he headed outside to wait for his mom to pick him up, a gang saw him, jumped him, left him bloody, beaten, lying on the ground. The doctors wired his mouth to hold his broken jaw in place. 
After Chervelle finally healed, he was walking to the park with a few of his friends when a car full of gang members drove up, pulled out guns, and opened fire. Charvel was hit six times and left with a punctured lung. His 18-year-old friend Tony was shot two times in the back and may not walk again. Charvel and Tony have grown up in our Bible clubs. They've gone to camp like Anna Rosa up at the Oaks. They've not only done that, they've been involved in the youth ministry that was mentioned, Kaleo Youth. These young people have had the seeds of God planted in their heart, and now they need for the church to stand with them during these difficult times of growing up in the city. Sarah came to Christ through her ministry also. She started a Christian club at her high school. Now, they study the Bible, they memorize Scripture, they pray, they worship God, but the prime motive for them being together is to lead their friends to Jesus because they know that they are the voice of Christ in their high school campuses. This summer, Sarah, like others, were baptized at the beach. It became very evident to us that the importance of our ministry to teenagers has never, ever been more valuable because of so many young people have so many things pulling on their lives. So we began to pray that God would give us an expanded ministry to teens. God, in his good sense of humor, answered this way. He caused the Los Angeles School District to build a brand new high school right across the street from our national office. So every day, 2,800 new young people come to our front door. We decided that we would take an old building that we owned, 9,000 square feet, and convert it into a teen center where they could come before school, after school, where they could learn to love God, where they could be helped with their SAT scores, mentored, cared for, and grow into all that God wanted them to be. That is a vision. That's not a real building yet. That's the old building and what the artist hopes that the teen center will look like. That's a half a block from the West Adams Preparatory School. Obviously, by the time you go through the city and you get all of your permits and bring everything up to code, the cost for this 9,000-square-foot facility well over a million dollars. So we had a gala last year. And at the gala, we gave out the Tom Bradley Lifetime Achievement Award. And the first recipient was Rosie Greer. And we wanted at that gala to raise funds for this teen center. So we invited lots of possible contributors to come. Near the end of the evening, the pastor of Malibu Presbyterian Church stood up. And he said, our church is remodeling our sanctuary, and we have decided to give $1 to missions for every dollar we spend on ourselves. And we would make a commitment tonight of $500,000 to help rebuild this teen center. That was on October 20th last year. Sunday morning, October 21st, I preached at the Evangelical Free Church in Huntington Beach. After the service, I got in the car, turned the radio on, and I heard this news report. Malibu Presbyterian Church had burned to the ground with a wildfire this morning. Boy, did my heart beat fast. I phoned the pastor. I told him that we were in prayer for him, and anything we could do to help, we'd sure be available. About three days later, the pastor phoned me, and he said the elders had met and decided that they were going to honor their $500,000 gift to build a teen, for people, a teen center for people like Anna Rosa before they even rebuilt their own sanctuary. And he asked, could I come Easter Sunday because they'd like to present a check to us. One of the things that World Impact does is we sponsor the Los Angeles Mayor's Prayer Breakfast. And I asked this pastor if he would come and pray at that breakfast. 
And so after he was introduced, before he prayed, he said, you know, I was a little cautious about coming to a World Impact sponsored event because the last time I came, (laughs) my church burnt down Sunday morning. (laughs) Mayor Villaraigosa looked at me and said, what happened? So I told him, and I said, isn't it amazing that these Christians in Malibu are going to, before they build their own sanctuary, Minister to teenagers in your city. And he looked and he said, it is amazing. And he said, I'd like to come with you and help accept that check. So on Easter Sunday morning, along with city council people, they had a proclamation from the city, the mayor and the pastor, not where the church is because it's down to ashes, right on the coast, had church and they gave us that check. We still have some funds necessary, but I'll tell you what, the mayor and the city council were terribly impressed by the fact that faith with works was going to impact their city. And we are believing that God will give us the funds so that we can finish this project. There isn't a person here who doesn't know that the neediest mission field in the world for Americans is central and south central Los Angeles. All I have to do is remind you how you felt the last time you missed the exit going to the Staples Center. (laughs) Or drove just a little too far trying to get to the Colosseum, and you begin to realize that somehow the city has a God-shaped void that is crying out for Christians to respond. Let me put some face on the statistics. Eight-year-old Jasmine Sanders on July 23rd, 8.45 p.m., was murdered outside of her apartment on 76th and San Pedro. She was the unintended target of a gang-related shooting. It turns out that she was murdered by her 13-year-old cousin who was shooting back at somebody else. 17-year-old Jamal Shaw, on March 2, was murdered in front of his home. The suspect had been released from jail the day before, and he was carrying out a gang initiation. Shaw was a good student. He wasn't in a gang. Two people in a car approached him and asked, where are you from, meaning what gang do you belong to? And when he said none, they pulled out a gun and extinguished his light. Jamal's father said, I told Jamal that if he did everything right, he could make it in life. And look what happened. We shouldn't have to lay on the floor and cringe every time our kids go outside. Jamal's mother was an army sergeant in Iraq when her son was slain on the streets of Los Angeles. Jamal was a star running back at L.A. High School. He was his team's and the Southern League's most valuable player, He'd been recruited to play football at Stanford and at Rutgers. And then there's Reggie. Reggie's one of our success stories. A 32-year-old man who lives in Watts, worships in one of our churches. Did everything right. You know, faithful to his wife, raised his kids, had a job. Walking home from work one day, a car pulls up, beckons at him. He thinks that maybe they want directions. They roll down the window, they take a gun, and they blow him to bits. A gang initiation. 1 Samuel 5, 11 and 12 says, For death had filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy upon it, and the outcry from the city went up to heaven. God heard the outcry from the city, and so have I, and so have you. Mark 3, 5 says, Jesus looked at them angrily, for he was deeply disturbed by their indifference to human need. 
The opposite of love is not hate. It is indifference. How I pray that the church is not indifferent to the cries from the city. So how should the church respond to people like Sharon and Jasmine and Jamil and Reggie? You know, traditionally, the church has looked at the city in one of two ways. There's been a wing of the church that looks at this and says, we have to go in and address the systemic wrongs. We need a better education system. We need better funding for the schools. We need to help the police. We need to do all of those systemic things, education, caring for the medical and physical needs of people that are so obvious, but we'll never mention the name of Jesus for fear we might offend someone. And then we have another wing of the church that says, no, apart from the good news of the gospel, there's no lasting hope. So we go in and we preach the gospel and we record decisions. And a year or two later, we wonder if there's been any lasting impact. I might suggest to you if you could sort of picture the church as the body of a bird and only one wing is flapping at a time. That bird is either going to go around in circles or it's going to take a nosedive. And if the church of Jesus Christ is accurately going to reflect the heart of the Master, it's time that we flap both wings at the same time. So how can we demonstrate that we are not indifferent to the needs from the city? Let me suggest that we need to declare the gospel and we need to demonstrate the gospel. Jesus came to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to set the captive free. Jesus made the blind to see, the lame to walk, the deaf to hear. But he never did a deed of the kingdom that he didn't accompany by a word of the kingdom. The two fit together like a hand and glove. And so the church must, first of all, declare the gospel. Now, I've been in the city since 1965, and I can testify to the effectiveness of the declared word of God. I've seen thousands of people, hundreds of groups come and go. But apart from the good news that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, very little of any lasting value occurs. Marcus grew up in the inner city of Oakland. His father committed suicide when Marcus was six. Marcus started to sell drugs, smart enough never to use the drugs, just became a big dealer. He made lots of money. One day, he's trying to escape from the police who are chasing him through the streets of Oakland 85 miles an hour. If you've ever been to Oakland, this is not good driving habits. He comes up to a signal, and he tries to avoid another car. The brakes lock as he's turning left, and he goes down this street, and he takes out one car after the other. Unfortunately for Marcos, the owner of all those cars happens to be another drug dealer who comes out with an AK-47, not pleased. The police come to a screeching stop behind him, and then they're forced with this moral dilemma. Do we intervene or let him settle it? Marcus says that's when he accepted Jesus as his Savior. (laughs) Shortly thereafter, he was at Morning Star Ranch, one one of our facilities in Kansas. He spent two years there getting grounded in the Christian basics, learning how to study the Bible, how to pray, how to memorize Scripture. He became employable. Upon graduation, he went to Moody Bible Institute. He is now pastoring an urban church and planning to come back full-time into ministry in the city. The power of the gospel. Some time ago, I met Mike and Manuel. Now, when Mike and Manuel first met each other, they were members of rival gangs. They did not care for each other. 
they fought each other, they would have taken each other out. Through a ministry just like Susie's, they both accepted Jesus separately. Reconciliation took place. They then became the best men in each other's weddings. Where else but the church does that happen? You heard Anna Rosa talk about the oaks. You know, when these guys accept Christ, one of the things we do up at the Oaks, that's our Christian Camp and Conference Center on Lake Hughes, is we have men's retreats. A lot of these guys who are former addicts and dealers and gang members and homeless come to find out that God saved a lot of people like them. And we declare that God will use them in mighty ways to go back to the city, to be messengers of Christ, to bring others to Him. You know, the Oaks is an amazing place. The last time I preached here, I told you that we were starting a project to double the capacity of the Oaks because we've been turning away too many children from the city who wanted to come. Homeless kids. We have 90,000 homeless in L.A. County, 30-some percent moms and kids. You can imagine the joy when these kids get to spend a week with three square meals in their own bed up at the Oaks. And you can also imagine the agony when we've said it's full. We're working with Prison Fellowship. There are 60,000 children of prisoners in L.A. County. 60,000 kids have a mom or a dad incarcerated. They have only had two churches that were willing to send counselors and help bring these kids to camp. Well, we want to step in the gap. So we begin to pray that God would allow us to double the capacity. I have good news for you. We're within about a month or two of having that happen. And at the Oaks, we are now going to have a dedication on September the 14th, right after church on Sunday. You are invited to come. And if you would like, there's a little invitation out of the book tables when you leave today, World Impact's book tables. Francis is going to be speaking up there. Jack Hayford is going to be leading communion. Rosie Greer will be there, since we are dedicating Rosie Greer Commons. That's going to be a dining room. Pat Boone Lodge will be there. Pat and his daughter Debbie will be singing, actually. It'll be a great time of fellowship to give to God what he's given to us. Come and bring your family and enjoy one of the victories of what God's doing, helping to change lives like Anna Rosa. The declaration of the gospel happens regularly at places like the Oaks. Now, we've known for years that if we took a 1,000 kids to camp and hundreds of them accepted Christ, when they came back to the city, if they were not incorporated into a local church, that very little of any lasting value seemed to happen. We could feed the hungry, And we could declare about the bread of life. But when people accepted Christ, if they didn't get incorporated into a healthy functioning body, their walk with the Lord just didn't seem to take. We knew years ago that if you were going to have effective churches, you had to have indigenous pastors. You go to India and you want to plant churches, you've got to raise up Indian pastors. If you, and Hudson Taylor went to China... You know, I know he tried to look Chinese. I mean, he wore Chinese clothes and grew pigtails. I don't think anybody in Shanghai ever mistook him for being Chinese. When he went to China, the success of his ministry was not that he tried to look Chinese, but that he raised up Chinese pastors. If you're going to have an effective ministry among the urban poor in America, you have got to raise up people out of that culture to pastor churches. Unfortunately, in the United States, if you happen to be urban and poor... In order to get a theological education, you have to change cultures. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, be saved, and move to Wheaton, Illinois. Change cultures and know someone who's rich. You know what it costs to go to Biola or Azusa or Westmont? There's not a chance on earth someone from the city is going to make it. 
And so basically what's happened is they've heard, don't bother to apply. That's why we started the Urban Ministry Institute, theological education for the urban poor. Everything I got in seminary, minus the Greek and Hebrew, extremely relevant to the city, solidly biblical, based on the Nicene Creed, so it predates denominations. We've now got 40 campuses across the United States where hundreds of people are being trained to pastor churches. We have one in a prison in Kansas. We've just opened a new pilot project with Prison Fellowship with 16 Southern California prisons. We're going to see how that works and hopefully roll it out. Let me tell you why. 2.2 million people are incarcerated in the United States today. There's more African-American and Hispanic young men in jail than there are in colleges and universities. Many of those guys are leaders. One of the prime places that Islam is having success in their evangelism, in the jails. And it's time that we step up to the plate. Uh, let me give you an example. You guys marry? Good. <laughs> Let's pretend that this morning God called you to come home with me this afternoon to Imperial Courts Housing Project in Watts to plant a church. Now, the pivotal words are God called. I need to tell you about Imperial Courts. Imperial Courts is the birthplace of the Crips. It's the most dangerous three square blocks in America. It has the smallest pre police precinct in America, three square blocks. It is one mile from Nickerson Gardens, which is where the bloods originated. In the past two decades, there have been hundreds and hundreds of people killed in conflict over that <clears throat> turf. There is no doubt that that's exactly where the church belongs. However, if you're normal, you're immediately going to be developing a Gideon list, is what I call it. A Gideon list is all of the reasons why God couldn't possibly use you in imperial courts. You're the wrong color. You're either too young or too old. What are you going to say to the mother-in-law? What about my kids going here? So you go to Francis, the pastor, and you say, what should we do? And he says, God called. We'll pray for you and send money. Oh, man. <laughs> so you're going home and you're trying to explain to your neighbors why you're putting this for a sales sign up. You're moving to imperial courts to plant a church in Watts. So they offer to pay for psychological help. <laughs> Want to make sure this isn't extreme midlife crisis. You phone Francis again. God called. We'll pray for you and send money. So you phone U-Haul. They won't even let you park the truck at imperial courts. <laughs> So you've got to borrow a truck from a friend. You're driving from Simi Valley. You're just about into the San Fernando Valley, and I phone on your cell phone. I say, hey, how would you guys like to have four men on your church plant team who are just getting released from Folsom? <laughs> By the way, they have all been through the Urban Ministry Institute. Theologically, they're probably better grounded than most people in the congregation. And they're all from imperial courts. And they've got this strange badge of honor. They've been in Folsom. See, now that's a new paradigm for missions. Now you're talking about empowerment in the declaration of the gospel by God taking people that the world has written off and using them to transform the cities. God used Moses, a fugitive from justice, a murderer. He used the apostle Paul, who was Saul. He used cowards like Gideon. He could certainly use us. What an amazing, exciting gospel that we believe in. We declare the gospel. You know, I've got to tell you, you remember Sharon? 
about six years after we buried her mom, she came to a church that I was in one Sunday and afterwards came up and she said, I'll bet you wondered what happened to me. This 21-year-old looked back and she said, when mom died, dad was in jail. I'm left with six brothers and sisters. I'm the oldest sibling. State wanted to come in and split us up. I had no alternative. Didn't have an education, wasn't employable. I went to Hollywood to keep the family together. See, and I knew right then that our mistake then is we didn't have a church. See, if we would have had a church, the older women would have cared for her. They wouldn't have allowed that to happen. We would have known. So we declare the gospel, but then we've got to finish the task by planting the church so that people like Sharon have a hope and a future because it's in our DNA to care and to protect if we're there, and the church has to be there. So we unashamedly are committed to declaring the gospel. Secondly, we are committed to demonstrating that gospel that we declare. Now, there's lots of ways to do this. This morning I'm going to emphasize just two or three. You know that Martin Luther King Hospital has been closed down. There are tremendous physical needs in the city, medical and dental needs. If you're a physician, a doctor, a medical professional, or a dentist, I would challenge you to think about volunteering and coming to help us in the city in the strong name of Jesus. One of the great needs that we have are dental needs. You know, if you happen to be urban and poor, there's a good chance that if you need you have an abscess tooth, you need an extraction, or you, you've got a root canal that's needed, you'll go to a hospital and they'll either give you Tylenol or something will be extracted, nothing in between. There was a dentist who goes to the EV Free Church, Evangelical Free Church in Canal Valley. His name is Dr. Arnie Balber, who heard me say that one day and committed to a day a week that he comes to the city. His church took an offering and bought all the dental equipment he needs, $25,000 worth. It's at the Watts Christian School. That's in Imperial Courts. 74-year-old Rita attends a church that we planted. Now, she had no medical or dental insurance. She'd lost all her lower teeth and was resorting to gumming her food or eating soup. By the way, this is, you know, Los Angeles. This is not Africa. I'm talking L.A. The result was she had a very poor diet and a dramatic wasting away of her physical well-being. A Christian dentist prepared a new set of lower dentures for her at no cost. Rita said, you know, I have no money to repay this dentist, but I know that this man gave me the gift because he loves God. Therefore, I'm thankful to God so that I can now eat real food again. See, that's the demonstration of the gospel. Willie is part of the Watch Church plant in Imperial Courts. Now, he hadn't been to a dentist in 30 years. He had one stubborn tooth hanging on in his upper front gum and several rear molars that had massive decay. Willie was the first guest at the Watts Dental Clinic. And after Dr. Balber finished working on Willie, Arnie asked if he could pray with him. Willie affirmatively and enthusiastically said yes. When we opened our eyes, Willie simply said, tears running down his face, I feel loved ever since I've been around you guys. I've been a different person. My heart's different. Jesus was working. Willie accepted Christ as a result of that dentist leading him to the Lord. Willie was baptized at the men's retreat. Willie will be in church right now, and he will have already, with his own money, gone out and bought breakfast and provided it for everybody who wants to come. You see, you declare the gospel, then you demonstrate the gospel that you declare. Now, we need 
dental assistants, hygienists, and dentists to help us. Second and fourth Thursday monthly from 7.30 to 3 or any time in between. One Sunday a quarter from 9.30 to noon. We need a licensed x-ray assistant. God may be talking to you. Dr. Balber's given all of his time. He's actually paying for all of the medical supplies. Some of you might be able to help with some of that. This is a tangible way to demonstrate the gospel to people in need right downtown Los Angeles. We also have the Los Angeles Christian School. We need gym and art teachers. And we're hoping to restart the Watts Christian School, also in Imperial Courts. We need a principal and some teachers. The three worst schools academically in the state of California are within a half mile of a school that's built, but we're missing people who will move into the community and make a difference there. God may be calling some of you. We're remodeling our sunshine shop downtown L.A. Some of you have given clothes and appliances and things like that. You know, it's incumbent upon the believer to maintain the dignity of the recipient when you give things. This is a perfect place to buy something for five or ten cents in the dollar to shake hands and say thank you as you leave. All great opportunities for you to help demonstrate the gospel that we declare. Ezekiel 16.49 says, Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. You know, I've always thought of Sodom as sexual sin. Ezekiel says their sin was that they were unconcerned, did not care about the poor and the needy. Let me suggest some ways that you can be very concerned about the city. The first thing is you need to be informed about the good things that God's doing. A lot of times when we hear about the city, it is so cloaked with fear that we don't hear that God is transforming the lives of people there and that there's a hope and a future. That's why I asked Anna Rosa to share this morning. She's living hope of what God can do. That's also why I wrote this book, Out of Ashes. I'd encourage you to get a copy as you leave today at either one of the doors. Let me tell you how the title came about. 1992, the worst civil disobedience ever in Los Angeles erupted April 29th. That night, I got a call from Jack Hayford. Francis Chan's on our board, so is Jack Hayford. Jack gave me a call, and he said, Keith, how are you doing? And I said, Jack, not well. I've spent three decades here. The city is in fire. There's flames all around. Frankly, it's pretty hopeless. And he said, God's given me a word of Scripture for you, that the Lord promises to bring a crown of beauty out of ashes. And I said, I can smell and feel the ashes. I can't even imagine a crown here, and hung up. Next day, he phoned back again. Saturday, they're about to have church. They had Saturday night and Sunday. He said, what's the response of the church to what's going on? I said, we desperately need food. See, the riots broke out on the 29th. There were no checks on the 30th delivered. And even if they had money, all of the food had been looted. It was gone. The stores were just out of commission. I said, we're having lots of people facing starvation. Sunday afternoon, he phones me back again. This time, he's almost in tears. And he said, you can't believe what God did. He said, I told the people about this. I told them to go home and to bring food back here. He said, our parking lot is now three to four feet covered with food. And he said, we've got people in the church who have moving vans. They'll be bringing it down first thing in the morning. And he said, it occurred to me that after that food was gone, we're going to have to buy more. So I told him we were going to take a retiring offering. They gave $250,000. 
Now remember, there was no communication. The phones were out and stuff like that. Jack just had my cell phone. So there was no way for me to phone other pastors and say we had these needs. But I got to the office with staff early that morning because we knew Church in the Way was sending food. Strange thing happened. Churches started showing up all the way from Santa Barbara to San Diego, full of trucks with food. They had volunteers. They had brooms. They had um, uh, stuff to clean up all of these things that had been shattered. Azusa Pacific shut down the school, and Dr. Felix sent all of the professors and just said, go down and do whatever Keith tells you to do to help. On the back of this book, it says, while the government was debating a response, the church was in the streets with food, brooms, hugs, and assurances. Out of ashes, a crown of beauty. You need to be informed about what God's doing. See, that's what faith with works is all about. If you don't like to read, I even brought audio and videotapes, magazines, pictures, <laughs> all kinds of ways for you to get involved. You need to be informed. Second thing is you need to pray. When this couple comes home with me this afternoon, <laughs> they do deserve your prayers for wisdom, for boldness, for safety. Now what about Tim Goodoo and his wife who've raised the kids there? and Susie, and Arnie. If you'd make a commitment to pray for a missionary who lives and ministers in the city, when you came in today, you got a little brochure about World Impact. On the inside of that, there's a coupon. Would you print your name and address on that coupon? Check the box that says, I'll pray. Tear it off. Leave it at one of the tables or slip it in my hands. In the first service, people asked about praying for Anna Rosa. If you'd like to pray for her in addition to a missionary, just stick an A on there, Anna Rosa. And I'll make sure she gets your email address, and you can pray for her as she goes back to Wells Lake, that God would keep her safe and raise up one of his champions to come back to the city to be salt and light. The army of God marches forward, first of all, upon her knees. God may call some of you to give. You know, this month and next month, you're going to give $100,000 each month, God willing, to urban missions. I would encourage you to give generously. And then the Lord may call some of you to come. I do hope that many of you medical professionals will join us in declaring and demonstrating the gospel. You know, I know Dr. Balber would love to share with you about what it's like to treat somebody like Willie and then lead him to Jesus and then watch him prosper in a church. Others of you might be called to come and to help plant churches in the city, to work with youth, maybe to work at the teen center. Maybe you have a construction company and can help us rebuild the teen center. God may be speaking to you. You might be a school teacher. I don't know what the Lord's saying, but my prayer for you is that whatever he leads you to do, you'll do joyfully. Because faith with works is alive, it is attractive, it is contagious. And when the world looks, it will understand that we serve a living Christ. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Our Father and our God, we're amazed that when you saved us, you trusted us enough to leave us here to be your hands and feet. Lord, help us to accurately reflect your heart among the poor in our cities. And help us, Lord, to walk in a manner that is pleasing to you. For it is in the strong name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.